Father, take my words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, those who've been here one or two times will know that I I quite like to introduce electrical goods into proceedings, and I'm going to do that right now. I wasn't quite sure how far away the socket would be. Now, um, when we started this series of Romans, we, we started it with a socket board of mine, which was not plugged into a power source. And we were talking about the theme of reconnection. And Romans 5 is all about that again. That socket board I brought to you a few weeks ago was not plugged into anything. And plugged it into nothing, it is of no use. There's no energy, no life flowing through it. But plugged into the mains, reconnected to a power source, things are very different. And to each one of us, the letter to the Romans is saying, reconnect, reconnect with God. And that way, you will know light, energy, life in your life. Now, if we could have the next slide, please. Today, we have moved to Romans chapter 5, as we're moving across Romans 1 to 8 this autumn. Now, to understand it, we need to read it in the light of the rest of the letter. And if you can, please do turn to Romans 5 in the Bibles that are in the church pews. And please, if you're at home, please do grab a Bible yourself. In in the Bibles in church, if you can turn to page 1068, there you'll find Romans chapter 5. Now, as we look across the first few chapters of Romans, what we see is that the first few verses are like a kind of introduction. And then from verse 18 of chapter 1 through to verse 20 of chapter 3, there's like a kind of diagnosis of the human condition. Um, And then from Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 21, through to the very end of chapter 8, there's the cure. And then in the the following two three chapters, 9, 10, 11, there's a kind of digression. We'll we'll come to that um, some months away from here now. Um, And then in Romans 12 onwards, to the end of the, uh, of the, the letter, is the kind of rehab. How we act now. As, as cured people. Um, so that's the basic structure. Um, but um, th- here is, uh, a, a, do we have the next slide, please? Uh, great, thank you. Um, you can break it down a bit further. So if you look at this, um, this is just Romans 1 to 8. And the way you can break it down is, is it's similar to what I've just put on the slide, but the, the Romans... Uh, we've got the introduction, first 17 verses, then Romans 1.18 to 3.20. We could call that, call that the diagnosis bit that we could split it into a couple of sections. So we've got to our need to reconnect with God. And then I'm splitting this. Romans 3.21 to 4.25 is about the way we reconnect with God. 
And then from Romans 5 verse 1, which is where we've got to this morning, this is about the benefits of connecting with, reconnecting with God. And Paul sums all of that up in verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what I want to suggest to you is we can think of this in under three headings, that we have objective peace, we have subjective peace with God, and we have effective peace. Let me unpack that. Objective, subjective, effective peace. How do we know we have peace with God? To answer it, look at verses 6 to 8. These give the objective grounds for why we know we have peace with God. You see, just at the right time, Paul says, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here, Paul is recapping on what he said in earlier chapters. We have objective grounds for knowing that we have peace with God, which is the cross of Christ. A person might choose to die for a, a, a good person, but they'd have to be very brave. But the idea that they die for their enemy, no, you wouldn't. Yet that is what God in Christ does for us. And this gives us objective grounds for believing in the love of God, regardless of how we feel inside. Our feelings go up and down. But Paul is saying here we have objective grounds for believing in the love of God, for God proves his love for us by the cross of Christ. Now, in the ancient world, the way you got right with God, it was thought, was you offered a sacrifice to God. If you go to an ancient town like Pompeii, indeed, um, my son was up on Hadrian's Wall a few days ago, and he was telling me he went to the Temple of Mithras. That's a, it's one of the temples you can find if you go up onto Hadrian's Wall. And the way those were used is there was a kind of altar, a stone slab in, in, the, um, in the temple, and you would put something on it, and it might be an animal, it might be the kind of blood from an animal. It might be some food. It might be some drink. It might be some money. But the point was that human beings would give a sacrifice to God. And that was a kind of way of sort of literally trying to buy favor with God. Now compare that with verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the cross of, is saying that God provides the sacrifice, not us providing the sacrifice. God provides the sacrifice. It's going exactly the other direction. The bridge is closed between us and God, but it is from God's side that the bridge is constructed. And in verse 10, Paul moves from the cross to the resurrection of Jesus. If while we were enemies, uh, we were reconciled to him through the that is God, through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, 
shall we be saved through his life. We have peace with God through the cross by which our sins are forgiven. The price is paid. We are set free like slaves bought out of slavery, redeemed. And beyond that, we are saved through the life of Christ. This is talking about the resurrection hope that is, in, that is the inheritance of everyone who follows Jesus. The hope that because he rose, we too shall rise. Let me show you a piece of ancient graffiti. Could we have the next slide, please? Now, apologies, the slightly um, risque picture that we have in front of us. This is some ancient graffiti. Um, You may think graffiti is a kind of modern invention, not in the slightest. Roman and Greek walls, the the cities were absolutely chock-a-block full of things that people have scrawled. Now, the words that are on this slide, the words are saying, Alexander worships his God. And that's Alexander, is the little kind of cartoony figure on on the left-hand side, pointing at the cross. And the thing that's distinctive, can you see, notice that the figure on the cross is naked. That's because uh, in this form of execution, it was degrading enough, but they actually executed people naked. Um, But the person on the cross has a donkey's head. Do you see that? That's, That's what the graffiti is. And what is going on here? Um, Some, perhaps, buddy of Alexander is sending up Alexander's faith. Alexander worships the God of the crucified Jesus. And whoever scrawled this is poking fun at it, is teasing Alexander, is is tearing a strip off him. Uh, And there was a logic to that piece of graffiti because for your average Roman or Greek, uh, crucifixion was the, the pits of degradation. Yeah, it, it was the, the, the um, you know, the, there were rather more high-class ways of punishing. You know, if you were a senator, you wouldn't have been executed by this. This, this was in order to utterly demean, belittle the individual suffering this. And so the idea of a crucified God, the idea of a crucified saviour, was literally mad. It made no sense at all. And that's why the graffiti is sending it up. You might turn it the other way and say that the cross is taking an upside-down world and turning it the right way up. The cross was saying to the contemporaries of Jesus, as it says to us, that God wants us, that God reaches out to us. And if that sounds irrational, well, we don't need to have a reason for why God loves us. He just does. And the idea, indeed, of a loving God would have seemed very strange to the ancient Roman and Greek world. It was uh, as much a surprise to them as it is to people of our own day. Hence that graffiti. The point of the cross of Christ is here is objective peace. Here we can have peace with God whether we feel it or not. Our feelings go up and they go down. We sometimes might feel 
the peace of God. And sometimes we, we don't feel, we feel anything but. The peace of God is still there. It's there whether our heart is singing or whether we are sunk in a depression. It's really there. Now Romans 5 says, as alongside having objective peace with God, we also have a subjective peace. That's what's going on in Romans um, verse 5 of chapter 5, God, where Paul says that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love has been poured out into our hearts. Here in this verse, this is a trailer for Romans chapter 8, where the Holy Spirit is spoken of much more fully. And we see here that one of the chief roles of the third person of the Trinity, perhaps the chief role of God the Holy Spirit, is to put the love of God into the heart of the believer. The principal gift, we might say, of the Spirit is God himself. When we turn to Jesus in faith, the Holy Spirit makes us deeply aware that God loves us and God is our Father. We do not earn this love of God. We simply have to receive this love of God. This is Pentecost for Paul. Verse 5 says, here is a gift of the Spirit that each of us can receive, that each of us needs. If you can remember a few weeks back, I talked to you about people from pay, the kind of people who would have heard uh, this letter to the Romans. Think of Primus, the slave who stoked the baths. Sabina, the craft worker, miserably poor, chipping out stone cups and bowls. Iris, the barmaid, who would have been used as a prostitute by the bar owner. Holconius, the small businessman, struggling to meet the demands of all his extended family and friends who wanted to use him to get by. And if you turn to chapter 16 of Romans, the very end of the letter, there's this wonderful long list of people um, who are utterly obscure to us. Their, their, their lives are, are now totally forgotten, but we have their names. Each of them... Um, people in the church to which Paul was writing in Rome. And the, these, each of them, the Christian faith, Paul is saying, each of them can know the love of God poured into their hearts, just as we can. There is something called assurance in the Christian life. I can only touch briefly on it here, but it is the assurance that God is present and that he loves us. We may feel it consciously sometimes, perhaps in worship, perhaps in some quiet moments of reflection. But the Holy Spirit is working that we know it always. And assurance is emphatically, I need to be very clear about this, insurance is not a kind of inner feeling of peace or a, or a kind of absence of stress. The idea is that we know it even in the midst of profound stress. And I'll come back to that. And it's not a warm feeling inside. It does, ha does have an emotional component, but it's something that the Christian who may battle with depression 
or anxiety, and there may well be people um, listening to me now who, who know very much a, a lot about depression and anxiety. The, the, the person wrestling with those horrible complaints can know it even in the midst of that battle. And I have to say, if I told you that I know the inner assurance of the peace of God, I'm conscious of that all the time. If I told you that, I would be telling a great big lie. I certainly cannot claim that. And quite frequently, I I don't know it kind of consciously in my emotional state. But what I will say is that I have consistently known it in the most stressful times of my life. My experience is consistently that as we turn to God, as I turn to God, things improve. Let me give an example of that personally. On occasion, I find I wake in the middle of the night and I struggle to get back to sleep. And I know that there will be plenty of others in this congregation who know that experience. Now, uh, there are different things one can do to help with that. But what strikes me ultimately is how in the morning, I always pray. That's one of the things I do at the start of the day. The amount of time will vary, but I always pray. And I'd like to tell you that I always pray because I'm a a really holy person. Uh, But that is not true. The, The reason I always pray is because I know I benefit directly from praying. I'm afraid there's a somewhat selfish reason for doing it, but I, that, 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 that's, uh, that's uh, you're getting some, some realities on, on how sort of unspiritual your vicar is. Um, however the night is, has been, whether I'm getting up feeling absolute bright and breezy, fully refreshed, or actually feeling a bit haggard and whacked, things are always better at the end of my praying than they were at the start. Always. I'm always nearer to Christ by the end of the praying than I was at the start. Always, invariably, without fail. And I think that is what Paul is getting at when he says in verse 5 that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Later in the letter, Paul will speak of how the Spirit praise in us praise for us i think that experience i have there is 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 something about what paul is getting at there chapter five is an incredibly rich passage and i've only time to sketch across some the broad themes in it so i'm going to say just something very briefly about the second half of chapter five um chapter uh, verses 12 to 21 where Paul is basically saying yes human fallibility is a huge problem but the grace of God is bigger verse 17 speaks of God's abundant provision of grace verse 20 where sin increased grace increased all the more verse 21 just as sin reigned in death so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord God's grace is bigger than our human capacity to foul things up. Now, I've spoken about how God, the peace of God is objective, about how it's subjective, and I want to finish by saying it is effective. 
objective, subjective, effective. And that's in the sense that it's effective, it will change us. That's what Paul is getting at in verses 3, 4, and 5 of chapter 5, where he says these quite outrageous words. We also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Now, you may well struggle with this. Can I stress what Paul is not saying? Paul is saying we can glory in our sufferings. He is not saying that suffering is itself glorious. Our sufferings are not good in themselves, but we can glory in the midst of our sufferings. Revelation speaks of how at the end of time, in the fullness of heaven, there will be no more crying and no more pain and no more death. God wants to abolish suffering. Christianity is not about being a stoic. But suffering is part of every person's life. It was for Paul and for his hearers in Rome, and it is for each one of us. And Paul has spoken of how we can have peace with God, and a minute later, he's talking about suffering. And this tells us about what the peace of God is that God offers. It's not an exemption card from trouble. Paul is writing to people in a city where one day he will be executed. The peace he talks of is a peace we know in the midst of trouble, and therefore it is all the more precious an acquisition. And Paul's message is that God can therefore use our suffering for good, causing perseverance, since suffering helps us see what truly matters in life, when so often we we actually only see the surface. Uh, Leading to a more solid character. That means a kind of steadiness in our inner selves under pressure, like that of a tested sportsman or woman who keeps going even when other people are losing their heads. And that progression from suffering to perseverance to character leads to hope, that is a confidence that God's ways will win out in the end. Here are some ways in each of our lives that we can see the effect of knowing God's peace. Knowing peace with God means we can stop talking ourselves down. Do you sometimes have a voice in your head that says, I'm no good, I'm a failure? Then hear the voice of God that says you are so valuable to him that he sent his son to die for you. You matter, so stop beating yourself up. Knowing peace with God means that we won't be crushed by what other people have said to us. You and I are not determined by what other people have said to us or are saying to us. Those words of criticism and condemnation. And knowing peace with God means we can stop making excuses. It's the government's fault. It's my genes fault. It's my parents fault. We are valuable to God, so let's stop being passive and blaming other people. 
lastly, knowing peace with God means we do not need to be frightened of dying. I think the last 18 months has shown us how powerful that fear is. We follow Jesus who has conquered death. And beyond that, knowing God's peace will make us transmitters of that peace. Being forgiven means we will have to start forgiving. Being hopeful means starting to hope in others. Being reconciled to God means trying to be reconciled to other people. But to say that is to anticipate themes that Paul will cover later in this letter. Let me finish by going back to the wonderful verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.